Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld. Welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. I hope you're doing well. We are going to jump right into this with a uh, a topic that I think never falls out of favor uh, in any category, in any um, really, in any genre, in any business, and and especially in the world of sports. No, you have not accidentally jumped into a sports podcast, but so much of what's going on in the world of sports today. Uh, especially right now as the NBA enters the playoffs, is, we'll call it, trash-talking, beefing, okay? Players beefing with each other, calling each other out. Let's just wrap it all up into rivalries. It's rivalries. Earlier this week in in, in a recent podcast, I I mentioned the fact that AT&T is now letting go of its Warner Brothers media content and giving it to Discovery Channel for them to, you know, handle and manage here on out. It's It's been called a merger, really what it is. If you read behind the headlines, as, as so many of them have, they have dumped it into Discovery. They don't want any part of that. Their stock went up as a result because they're competitive. It's part of rivalries. AT&T is competitive with Comcast, who is competitive with Disney and Apple and, 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 you know, uh, Microsoft, I mean, you guys, rivalries drive so much of what we do, but the particular rivalry that got my attention this week is not a sports one. It's an, it comes from the world of anime and uh, specifically the, the Japanese animation, um, that, 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 that has just taken everybody by surprise, the, the, not surprise, taken everybody by storm is, uh, the, the worldwide global success of Demon Slayer, okay? Um, Demon Slayer was was even, uh, I mean, it, it made a giant studio, multi, you know, $100 million budget film, Mortal Kombat. It made it sweat its opening weekend. Here in the United States, It um, Mortal Kombat edged Demon Slayer uh, only by like a maybe a million, million or more. Um, they came in roughly with the same estimate that weekend showing how powerful... Uh, Japanese animation has become with the American audiences. And I know this because under my roof, I have lived with uh, a son, my youngest son, Chase Liefeld, has been into anime and manga for a good, uh, it's it's a solid decade of his life. When he was eight or nine years old, he just got turned on to this stuff. He never looked back. He is obsessed with Eastern um, pop pop arts, uh, uh, whether it's whether it's uh, the Pokemon craze, whether it's Yu-Gi-Oh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Naruto, uh, you know, uh, uh, My Hero Academia, Attack on Titan, uh, and, and he just, he just his, his appetite for this uh, Japanese animation is overwhelming. And, and you know, I have re- recommended to him the Studio uh, Ghibli, uh, Ghibli uh, uh, products, uh, not products, their titles, their different animation, because because um, certainly Princess Mononoke, I am still uh, reeling from how much that melted my face. And uh, Princess Mononoke, when I, I think it got, uh, it was out here in the United States. It got it got uh, it it got distribution here in the United States. I believe in '99, sometime in '99, and and uh, my my. Uh, my uh, friends and I went to see when it was released uh, over over here overseas down uh, near in I guess Santa Ana. I thought it would maybe be uh, be be uh, uh, Newport Beach, 
but we, uh, it was Ian Churchill who was living with me at the time. Yes, Ian Churchill who uh, did the coven for me under my awesome comics banner. More popularly, you would probably know him from his work on cable uh, in the mid-90s uh, with Joseph Loeb III, otherwise known as uh, Jeff Loeb. And, and uh, he would also do uh, some issues of Wolverine that I wrote. And so, so he was living with me here in Southern California. We had a great big giant house and we, uh, were happy to, um, to, to give him a, a, a spare room. And then later, uh, he went on to, uh, he went on to, uh, get, get a place of his own in, uh, in, in Newport beach, no Laguna beach, Laguna beach. But for that period of time, we shared our love of anime and manga and again, Ian Churchill, was living with me at the time, uh, and I believe, I believe it could have also been Jimmy J. He can confirm that. But the three of us went and caught like the nine o'clock screening of Princess Mononoke. And if you have not seen Princess Mononoke, you have done yourself a great disservice, in my opinion. It is the greatest of the uh, the Studio Ghibli uh, 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 offerings. I I I, uh, I I have loved that movie. Um, I mean, it it, it is. It is everything that I love. It's got warriors, action, fantasy, monsters, uh, great. It's got magic. Um, it, it opens with a bang with this great scene out in this field. And they're um, trying to take down this beast with bows and arrows on horseback. And of course, you know, Princess Mononoke has her giant wolf. And I don't want to give too much away because otherwise, you know, you'd be like, well, why am I going to go see this? But I mean, I have the art of book. I have all, all sorts of... Um, you know, Princess Mononoke paraphernalia. Uh, you know, it, 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 while Princess Mononoke was out in 1997, again, it reached United, uh, the, the shores of the United States uh, and, and got and, and, and reached specifically, it was the fall. I know it was the fall of 1999, and we saw it at the Regency Theater, which is an art house film. Um, Last Days of Disco. Um, uh, 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 being John Malkovich, these are the, the, the this this is a great uh, little two theater art house uh, uh, setup that's been across from the South Coast Plaza since I was a kid, and I I hope I have not been down there in the last year and a half. I hope it's still there. I hope it's still active. I hope they're going to reopen now, uh, given that, that that things are starting to reopen and theaters are going to be back in business. But we saw it. Uh, I think at nine o'clock uh, showing of Princess Mononoke. And I was just blown away. Prior to that, I would have given the uh, the nod to Akira, or yeah, I won't say it. Akira. Um, um, the 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 uh, the just blew me blew me away. Saw that with Jim Valentino and and Brian Murray in the exact same theater, in the exact same theater uh, in the late '80s when or or '89 or 1990 when it was getting its its theatrical rollout. And again, just completely blown away by. The detail, the character design, the action. I mean, uh, look, th there's a reason so much of what you see on television is sent overseas, whether it is Korea, Japan, uh, to be to, to, to put the final touches on the animation. Myself, briefly, I had an animation uh, division. I was trying to do a Youngblood cartoon, and I met with Korean uh, producers and production houses that there's a clip on YouTube if you see it. I, I I did two different ones, a brief like like I think it's 60 seconds. One is like a two minute, uh, two and a half minute Youngblood animated cartoon. It, it it was the top guys at Warner Brothers at the time, and uh, they had come to me looking to branch out on their own. I financed this 
this uh, small, uh, the, I, I, I finance these these two different um, clips or two different uh, short sorts, and and uh, we you know through the process I learned a lot about what goes into the nuts and bolts of making animation. And to, those, to this day, I, I take those lessons and and all of the uh, the different steps that I learned along the way. I take those to heart, and I know exactly what goes into how. Uh, you know, making something as great as 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 Akira and Princess Mononoke and now Demon Slayer is not Youngblood is obviously not in that category, but everything you see some somehow goes through um, these animation houses overseas, and uh, you know uh, Netflix is getting a t- into into anime and and so this Demon Slayer with all of its success has caught the attention of the Studio Ghibli guys and. Uh, and and one of the uh, the execs over there said, "We believe that uh, Demon Slayer and 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 the studio behind Demon Slayer and the creator of Demon Slayer, we believe they are our rivals. They are our rivals, not only just for box office, but going forward in the future." Now, um, you know, the the studio behind Princess Mononoke, um, and again, if you if you Google it. Uh, I may be butchering it. It's Studio S T U D I O G H I B L I. I've heard it Ghibli, Ghibli. Um, so, so, so look, man, that Spirited Away, uh, uh, Princess Mononoke. Now, Spirited Away is their, is I believe their best, most noticeable, most celebrated, most um, award-winning of 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 their product. But I, I would double down if you are a comic book fan, if you are a fantasy fan, and you want a killer escape. Um, I popped the Blu-ray in a couple uh, months back and, and and tried to get my family to jump jump on and watch it with me, but I ended up <laughs> watching it alone because it's just not as cool as Attack on Titan. That 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 was just you know the the before a frame was ever seen that was the ruling or the excuse given why not to plop down on the couch and watch it with dear old dad. But anyway, um, Princess Mononoke con- t- continues to hold up. It's magnificent. It is it is amazing. Demon Slayer. Um, from everything I've seen, I'd be lying. I have not seen it. My son has seen all the episodes and the theatrical release of this film, and uh, you know they said uh, they said the 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 um, executive at Studio Ghibli, whose last name is Suzuki, uh, is quoted as saying that he uh, believes uh, that Demon Slayer is a rival, and uh, <clears throat> and that uh, you know they know that, that that Demon Slayer is a huge success. And, you know, I guess, I mean, the best we're going to get out of them is that they're aware of their existence and their arrival and, and, uh, and they're very impressed with the success that they have, uh, they have been able to, uh, uh, generate. And the, the thing is what caught my, my attention is the attention of rival rivalry. And, you know, let's, let's admit the, the amount of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of beefing or, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, talk term shit talking there is very minimal but it made headlines it made headlines studio ghibli exec sees demon slayer as their rival and 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 they went on to actually uh poke and prod uh and and attempt to get more out of the actual creator of of demon slayer himself and he said uh look when they said it's going to break your box office records and he said eh inflation happens kind of a little bit of a dismissal there inflation happens and then he says you know, uh, whatever happens, it's not. There, it has nothing to do with me. I'm an old man. I'm retired, and uh, 
And so, so, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Miyazaki, 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 uh, is, is, uh, has been asked and, and he says, it's none of my business about Demon Slayer. I don't watch it. I'm a retired old man who picks up the trash. Okay. And, uh, he says he is more concerned with the trash, you know, than he is with this, with this film. That's kind of the implication. Uh, um, and then when asked directly that Demon Slayer is potentially going to knock off Spirited Away to become Japanese, to become Japan's highest grossed, grossing movie, Miyazaki had only this to say, the world has always been inflated. We need to pick up more trash. So, um, and, and, and around the world, those comments have been parsed and have been, uh, have been examined. And, and they, 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 again, then, then following that interview, the exec at Ghibli said, we see them as our rivals. Okay. So, um, you know, what this reminded me of is how much I miss rivalries. And when I, when I went to, to track all this down and followed all these links and went to three different sites and, and really, again, the beefing is very minimal. Let's be honest. The beefing is very minimal here, but it was like rivalries. I miss them. I miss them in comic books. I get them all the time in sports. I get them all the time. You know, uh, the, the you know, uh, uh, the, the, the different teams that I follow, whether it's the NFL, the NBA, everyone is fighting for dominance. You know, LeBron James may go to Twitter like he did earlier in this week and remind people that, you know, he's averaged 25 points a season, every season of his career. And then he, you know, made a comment that, but funny how I don't get noticed as one of the most prolific scorers of all time. And he says, that's fine. I prefer it that way. And the implication is it, it's what drives him. Rivalries are key because they drive us. It makes me think about the comic book rivalries. In films, though, before I pivot to comics, I mean, you got James Cameron. What was the summer of 2019 all about? It was about can Endgame take down Avatar. Uh, James Cameron had had that record for a decade. He had the record prior to that with his own movie, Titanic. He knocked off Star Wars to get there. E.T. had knocked off Star Wars years prior and Star Wars reclaimed it when it did its re-release in 1997. And so, you know, and to celebrate the fact that Titanic had knocked off Star Wars as the biggest franchise, the biggest movie success of all time, the number one movie of all time, worldwide box office, uh, George Lucas commissioned. It was great. It was in, in, in all the trades the morning that it was coming out that Titanic was going to wear the crown. And it had the Titanic like crashing into an iceberg and all the Star Wars characters were being thrown from the boat and they were saluting, you know, James Cameron's success. Like you crashed into our, 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 our achievement and you're now the king. And it was very classy. It was great. It showed great class on George Lucas's part that he commissioned that um, drawing. And uh, it, 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 it was an acknowledgement, a passing of the torch. Of course, then James Cameron takes away his own record by beating Titanic with Avatar, a movie that people did not see coming. I remember laughing certain comic book creators, one that comes to mind, uh, Brian Bendis had seen an early screening of Avatar and openly not like was mocking it. And I was like, huh. And, 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 and talking about flying dragons and it's ridiculous. And, um, I was like, huh, well, I went saw saw Avatar and, um, I'm one of those guys whose mind was blown. And first let's, let's just establish right now that as with so many things in the culture, suddenly 
Avatar became cool to knock. It became cool to piss on. It became really cool, and maybe we can spell that K-E-W-O-L, K-E-W-L. It became really cool to diminish the success of Avatar. The last 20 years, I've had a really interesting viewpoint of pop culture because uh, I've been raising my children, uh, you know, and, and, and seeing things through their eyes and seeing the culture that they gravitate towards. Again, um, my house is full of manga. My son was very impressed with how much, you know, manga I have. The other day was, you have Vinland Saga? Wait, how long have you had Vinland Saga? Okay. Um, I have, I have, uh, I have, I'll just say probably a thousand manga titles, uh, way less than, 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 than many, but, but more than, than, than several people I know. I have a lot of manga. I love the visuals. My style was very in, in, uh, informed by my favorite manga stuff. I know another guy named Eric Larson is very much into, um, into manga and, uh, and, and we bonded early on in our careers in the eighties, uh, walking around, um, checking out different manga titles at one of the earlier, not the first, but later on, maybe the third or the fourth WonderCon shows. And, and Eric and I were showing each other some of our favorite manga. I am, am uh, very fortunate that the, the county that I live in and have grown up in, there are several of these Japanese markets or Asian markets that I have frequented, um, one near South Coast Plaza, and there's um, one in Westminster, and there's one in Garden Grove, and I used to go and drop hundreds of dollars on these um, uh, you know, manga collections, series, books. It was always very tough because they're shrink-wrapped, and you'd have to get special permission to open it, often being denied that permission. You just have to take that leap of faith. They didn't want to open it. It's like you make that choice right there. Um, I would come home and then again, I would unwrap what I had bought and found which choices of mine that I preferred and which ones that maybe I shouldn't have picked up because they weren't as exciting as I thought they were. But, uh, the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, I, I have been extremely informed by manga and, and yet I did not force that or I, it, at nine years old, I'm certainly not recommending any of the manga that I'm looking at because it's all R rated to my child. My son picks up on it, loves anime, loves manga, takes it all the way to the bank, um, and collects and consumes all sorts of uh, Japanese cards, toys. His um, his uh, display shelf in his room is all, you know, um, uh, Attack on Titan, My Hero Academia, Pokemon, and Naruto uh, statues and figures. And it's cool. I love to go in there, and I've given him some of them as gifts. So 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 I love to go in and admire them. I I I I just think. It's it's cool to have somebody else who isn't as crazy, who is more crazy about something than you are, who can cast um, some light and and perhaps, you know, educate you on the subject matter. And in 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 in, in raising my kids, stuff that they have liked has quite frankly often surprised me, and and I have benefited from the fact that they have been able to um, shed light on something, maybe a trend or an idea or a concept that I would otherwise have not been you know, exposed to or turned on by. And in this case, when we went and saw Avatar as a family, I had already seen it by myself and I loved it. I loved the simplicity of the concept and, and the, and the complexity of the world and the details and the effects. And that last act where you've got Stephen Lang and all of his um, troops and their high tech artillery um, going after the Navi <clears throat> and their flying dragons with their giant bows and arrows. And they're battling, you know, mechanized suits. And uh, you guys, it's it's cowboys and Indians 
in, in a sci-fi manner. I got it. I got it immediately exactly the way George Lucas was giving me a mashup of Western and Eastern culture in Star Wars when I was a kid. I am now getting this very basic Cowboys and Indians um, battle on another planet with um, with uh, on another tech level. And, and, and I think Cameron uh, and his execution of that property was magnificent. It entertained me, but more importantly, it entertained my kids. They, my two boys, uh, up until a few years ago when, the, when their best friends moved away, uh, they were matched up perfectly with our best friend's kids. So my Luke had another nine-year-old Luke and my seven-year-old Chase had a seven-year-old Bronson. And they played together all the time. I mean, they practically raised each other for the times that they were hanging out. They were the very best of friends. And when we took them to see Avatar, we took all of them, combined families, they ran out of the theater and immediately began play acting what they had seen. And that's when, as I observed them and what they were doing and who they were play acting, I knew, wow, Avatar resonates. As a family, we probably saw the movie three times for a movie that, with that running length um, and to be as entertained by as, as we were and to go and see it repeatedly was um, meant that it was fitting the bill for our family and it blew everyone away. As you guys all remember, Avatar went on to break every single record, gazillion, billion, whatever it was. But a, gaz a, a few more gazillion, billion was made by uh, Avengers Endgame. And Avengers Endgame then went on to get the crown and Cameron congratulated them. But, you know, to, to James Cameron's credit, Avatar, and you can say, no, you can see the, the, the sourcing of it all over it. Yeah, I can see the influences too. Some of which came from different animation and, and comic books, but, but the bottom line is it's, it's an original screenplay concept. Original meaning that it didn't it was not based on a previous work. It was not based on a comic book. The Deadpool movie is adapted from a comic book. The Avengers are adapted from a comic book. There's no sourcing on Avatar. It's just a screenplay, and that world is brought to light by James Cameron. And it's impressive that the guy had two number one worldwide global records smashed by himself. He, he took the crown from Star Wars, then he took the crown from himself, and then 10 years later, the culmination of a giant, sweeping comic book saga that got the entire world caught up in its wake, took the crown from him. Now, apparently there's an Avatar re-release uh, that's going to, that's going to um, be happening, and, and, and he'll probably um, edge the crown back. But, you know, the funny thing is Disney owns both, and there's a lot of doubters and a lot of skepticism as to what's going to come next. But... Uh, you know, I wouldn't bet against James Cameron, but the bottom line is the rivalries. The rivalries are what drive people. What is and can be achieved. If you don't think Marvel had their sights set on Avatar, they did. They celebrated it um, when they achieved it. They mentioned it at San Diego. Kevin Feige came out on stage at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. First thing he mentioned, we've, we're number one. We've broken the record. Uh, he, at D23, a few weeks later, I was there in attendance in that hall. He mentioned it again. We've we've broken the record. Bob Iger, the 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 head of Disney, came out and said the same thing. We've broken the record. These records, they they are, they are the part that they are the prize of the big rivalries. And in comic books, we have seen our fair share of rivalries. I have rivals. There are rivalries going on right now all around us in comics. But the difference is, you don't really hear about them anymore. They're very dialed down. They're not as aggressive as they used to be. My generation was raised on the um, beefing and trash talking that was brought about by other comic book creators. The, the guy who comes to mind the most is John Byrne. And, um, and, and John Byrne, who you know I have praised and I have, uh, I, I have elevated, John Byrne in 1991 as the transition of New Mutants to X-Force was going on. Just so you, so you know that I don't have any beef with this guy. 
he um, was very dismissive of all of us. He was dissing Todd McFarlane. He was dissing Jim Lee. He was dissing myself. He saw us to a threat to his almost 20-year dominance. He was uh, the focal point of so much of what was going on in the comic book industry, but it was slipping from him as it would a great athlete. Um, Athletic windows exist because Father Time is undefeated. You know, Father Time um, will win every single battle. You will, in fact, age. You may slow it down. You may try and dial it back as much as you can. But Father Time is undefeated. And eventually, um, Michael Jordan can't jump from the top of the key and dunk the ball anymore because age took that from him. At, at one point, with his peak ability and skill, he was able to do that. Um, it, it, Father Time is, is why Joe Montana is not playing football anymore. Father Time is why Tom Brady will be retiring sometime in the next several years. But he is he and LeBron James have both done their very best to defy Father Time. Kobe Bryant played for 20 seasons. He did his best to defy Father Time, but it caught up with him. But he wanted to let you know how great he was in his last game, and he dropped 60 in, in a game that the Utah Jazz were desperately trying to win for playoff uh, implications and scenarios. But the Lakers and Kobe Bryant decided you know, this may be my last game of my 20th season, but I'm going to drop 60 points on your head and we're going to win this game. And uh, so father time comes for everybody. And for John Burns' career, it was as extended and long and, and, and as, 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 as impressive as anybody I've ever known. Um, from, from I would, I would roughly tell you that from 1975 to 1990, this guy was a force to be reckoned with. His peak was like, you know, from 1977 to 1986, he had like a nine-year just as hot as anybody could could be for 10 years straight. But he was starting to talk trash about all of us in different magazines. He would always reserve kind of a diss for all of what would be known as the image guys. And for me, he said um, that he finds my art uh, so offensive that he wanted stakes driven through my hands. I laughed out loud when I read that. I knew exactly where that was coming from. That was a guy who um, who was commenting on someone who, like myself, he, like me, was someone who, uh, whose style was seen as a little bit different, as a little bit um, maybe unwelcome when he arrived in the 70s, 1975, 1976. I've sat and I've talked with Neil Adams, who you guys all know I consider the greatest illustrator to ever touch comic books. Neil Adams came from, Neil Adams never left the world of advertising. He was always valued his 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 agency continues to do television commercials. It continues to do print ads, and that's where it started. It did newspaper strips. He did comic books for Marvel and DC, eventually doing his own um, company, Continuity Studios, and, and a multi-year publishing um, output from Continuity Studios under Neil's guidance. Neil is a tour, tour de force, 80 years old, still crushing all of us with his artistic skills. Father time has not come from him for him yet. He is now the new definition of stretching it and extending it because he decided several years ago that he was going to re-engage in a way that he had never engaged before. But Neil Adams, in fact, when I brought up John Byrne, he's like, yeah, he's a nice kid. He kind of was doing a watered-down version of me. Neil Adams to Rob Liefeld. John Byrne is a watered-down version of me. I saw it as a kid. John Byrne looked, and I've talked to this on several podcasts that I have done on John Byrne, especially early on in this podcast. If you go probably in the first 30, 40 episodes, I've done a couple on John. He was that popular, that resonant, that impactful on me, my my, my consuming of comic books and my career. And uh, I saw that he was a diluted, uh, kind of a simplified, purposely 
purposely simplified version of Neil mixed with the um, Japanese animation that I was growing up watching, notably like Battle of the Planets, which was Gotcha Man over here in the United States. It was um, syndicated on in the mornings, Monday through Friday out here in Southern California called Battle of the Planets. But the big eyes on the women, the, the note that, that was a signature... Um, uh, a signature application of the Japanese anime style was big eyes. And John's women had big Japanese anime eyes reflecting what was going on in Japanese animation in 19, you know, the 1970s. And his men slightly as well, but from the neck down and sometimes certain angles of faces, he was doing Neil Adams. Very influenced by Neil Adams. Later, he would really um, merge the Jack Kirby, the Steve Ditko with that style when he did Fantastic Four. Is probably when he shed... A lot of his Neil Adams, but certainly through the entirety of his X-Men run, his celebrated Captain America run, the stuff that he was doing on with Spider-Man on Marvel Team-Up, his Avengers, was this Neil Adams application was shining through very strongly. So Neil Adams, he's a watered-down version of me, just kind of dismissive, because I don't think on any level, uh, there's at no point does Neil Adams believe that John Byrne is as good as he, you know, was. And I would agree that John Byrne is not as polished and an all-around illustrator as Neil Adams is. I think that that is a high bar for anyone to reach. And um, John Byrne, on the flip side, uh, has done more great comic book storylines, work resonant, uh, possibly. That, that, that run on X-Men is hard to beat. It's considered, my, my, I consider it, as do many, the best run comics ever saw. The John Byrne, Terry Austin, X-Men run. So I think Neil is the better artist. John... Um, through himself and, and, and possibly... No, I, I actually believe John is a superior storyteller. He is the better storyteller. Neil is the better artist. But we buy comics for pictures and Neil Adams just knows, like, I'm, I'm great. I don't need to apologize. When I was asking Neil about all of the different pencilers that I love that he's inked, John... John uh, sorry, Neil Adams has done spectacular inks over such iconic greats as John Buscema. As... Gil Kane, okay. Um, he has he has. Uh, I mean, he, he he's he's inked Jack Kirby, okay. Uh, in in his time, Neil, it was considered an honor if Neil Adams wanted to um, embellish you, ink you. And when I was speaking to to Neil about this, he said, "Rob, I'm the best inker John Buscema ever John Buscema ever had. I'm the best inker Gil Kane ever had." He goes, "You know, if I inked if I inked you, I I I, I was the best." I was the best at, and, and it's hard to argue. Again, my, my respect for Neil is there is no one in the business I respect more than Neil Adams as far as someone who can draw. His penciling skills, his 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 drawing faces, figures, certainly his early DC, the Green Lantern, the Batman, the Uncanny X, the, not Uncanny, just the X-Men. Uh, it, it's stunning. Seek it out. It'll be better than any comic you pick up, pick up at the store today. Um, the, 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 the peak Neil Adams and again Superman Muhammad Ali is a comic book for the ages it will blow your mind it will melt your face the way Princess Mononoke melt my melt, melted my face in the Regency Theater in the fall of 1999 when it was released so he's very confident in, 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 and I don't believe Neil really considers that he has any rivals with, for good reason I haven't seen anything as good as Superman Muhammad Ali and, and that book came out in 1978 okay it's a long time to kind of you know be the best and, and, and I, I, I've never seen anybody, um, there are shots and images from that book. There is, when, when Superman is, it's all part of the story, it's all part of the story. Superman is beaten to a pulp at some point. 
There's a splash page of everyone taking of, of, of Jimmy Olsen and, and, and Muhammad Ali's crew and they're taking Superman out on a stretcher and it is a aerial shot, bird's eye view looking directly down. The camera is directly over us so you see flat the stretcher that Superman is is uh, is is sprawled out on and he looks like he's dead uh, from from the mannerism, the, the the gesture to the rendering, the the face, the blood, the the swelling, the bruising. And the urgency with the people carrying the stretcher as they're clearing people away. You see, they're moving as fast as you can possibly imagine them to be moving in a still picture through the crowd, parting them. And this, this is a tight shot. It, 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 it's, it's great because how tight the shot is, but you still get so much of the movement. Again, Neil's the best. So um, when, when John Byrne is dissing on Rob Liefeld, saying he shouldn't be drawing comics if I could drive stakes through his hands, you know, I would. So we, he could never draw comics and we wouldn't have to see that anymore. I did not get offended by that. I laughed it off. I thought it was funny. I thought it was the mark of somebody who was showing his colors, who was showing that he was nervous, who was showing that he knew that there was a new generation that was coming for him, a new generation that wasn't exactly, that, that was departing from what he did. Again, we were mashing up the anime and the manga that we were loving. If you saw my work and you saw Berserker in it, if you saw Pat Labor, if you saw Appleseed, if you saw Akira, then, then you were correct. I was drawing so much from all of my love of manga and putting it into my work, and it separated it. Todd McFarlane also was very blown away by some of the uh, manga that he had seen. He had an assistant named Terry, and I know that Terry would expose him to a lot of stuff, and I know that it was Terry because they told me this at San Diego in 1988-1989 that they had gone to see see Akira together and Todd was completely blown away. So if you were exposed to it at that time, you wanted to apply it and put it into your own work. But so... But 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 that rivalry, that that acknowledgement from from a guy who I worship, I am actively collecting, pursuing, buying John Byrne artwork. I collect it. He is my favorite artist of all time. Rob, your favorite artist of your of, of all time, um, dissed you and shit on your face. Yes, he did, and I don't care. It does not diminish one iota how much I love him. It does not diminish one iota how much I absolutely think that peak John Byrne is some of the best comic books ever made and that uncanny X-Men run is one for the ages. But what about other comic book rivalries? Because there's been plenty. And 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 uh and it's funny, um over time, you know, because because let's 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 stay with John Byrne here. Um because one of the big comic book rivalries that, that got even more um um intense was when John, who had spent most of the 90s working for Dark Horse because he had um, he had fallen out with Marvel. It was when he made those comments to me about um, when he made those comments disparaging me. You know, my books were outselling his books. Todd's books were outselling his books. Eric Larson's books were outselling his books. Jim Lee's books. Now he 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 combined and scripted some issues. Scripted, no less. I don't know that he's ever. I think he then scripted with Mike Mignola, but outside of Jim. And Mike, it wasn't something he did in a high-profile manner, but I think he did it because Jim Sweet talked to him for a brief period of time. And he was scripting with Jim Lee on the X-Men, but that was short-lived and he left. And then Scott Lobdell came in. So you went from Claremont to then Burn briefly. And then Scott Lobdell um, kind of became part of that um, partnership and there was no looking back. John then went on to do Dark Horse comics. He did he did Next Men. He did Babe. He did, uh, you know all manner of comics, and stayed there for a long time. He did not wander back into Marvel and DC until mid-decade. He did some Wonder Woman. He started dabbling with DC again. And then he finally uh, got 
uh, in a position to where he would do a new X-Men book. But it was an X-Men book that filled in the gaps between, wait for it, wait for it, the era that was left behind by Neil Adams. Neil Adams was the was the era that closed up shop and then the X-Men went into reprints. So that those stories never had some continuation. There was all sorts of open uh, storylines and, and plot points that were never addressed because they abruptly stopped making new material for the X-Men. And then it went into the reprint period for many years until Giant Size X-Men breathed new life into the X-Men franchise. And then it became the number one comic book for 25 years. I mean, can you, again, astounding. Canceled? No, no. It, condemned to reprints, just existing to keep the title out there. Uh, new version of the team comes out, eventually becomes the number one book for, for two, two, over two decades. But John Byrne comes back and he pitches The Hidden Years. Uh, it's picking up with the Neil Adams storylines and continuing to go forward and to 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 um, to examine all of the left behind storylines from the Neil Adams years, and and uh, so so they launched a new number one X Men: The Hidden Years. John Byrne would write and draw the book, and it was bridging the gap that would lead you all the way from the last X Men issue to the, before the reprints to Giant Size X Men number one, lead you right up to the relaunch, and uh, th- th- this became very popular. This was a very it, it's still a trope that I see people um, engage in where you fill in a lost gap, okay? And uh, it says uh, that when John Byrne got greenlit that project, it was it was by uh, it was by Bob Harris, who was the existing editor in chief. But then Joe Casada came in with Joe, Bill Jemis to become co-publishers of Marvel in the early two thousands, and uh, Joe Casada thought that this was not a worthwhile venture. He did not enjoy the book, and uh, he informed uh, John Byrne that he would be canceling the Hidden Years, which was about to hit its twenty-second issue. So it was launched in you know uh, late ninety-eight, and now in two thousand, it's going to be canceled. And uh, Byrne threw a signature temper tantrum and all sorts of insults towards Marvel and Joe Casada. And John Byrne uh, left Marvel over this. And uh, it says that Byrne, this is, you know, modern day, regularly takes digs at Marvel on social media. Making sure you're reminded of this. Now, I know that they tried to bring John Byrne back to do a um, extension of his own run. So basically, a, a hidden years version that picks up, you know, what would have happened if John Byrne never left the book and he stayed on. Kind of an alternate timeline that got very close to happening but did not and so john burns rivalry that started with this joe casada cancellation and all the trash talk um now continues uh into with marvel to this day because um john is very incensed that they moved away from this book canceled it in his eyes prematurely and uh and 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 um you know it's 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 always ugly when 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 there's quote-unquote creative um creative differences okay um but but uh you know unfortunately that that's that's kind of what how things are broken down john went on to uh to to inform his his views on uh on on this matter when he uh (laughs) <laughs> he, he he says uh, 
he says repeatedly, uh, you know, he, he, he says repeatedly that, 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 that this isn't why he's not back at Marvel, but it, it, it feels like it, it, this is exactly why he is not back at Marvel. It all, it all kind of comes back to, to this incident and, and the war of the words that, that was felt between these two gentlemen. And, and, and again, the, the after effect is that John has not been back at Marvel since. Now, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Al Milgram. And Al Milgram was a penciler, and then became an inker in his career that that really started off in the uh, in the seventies, where he would pencil comic books. He would pencil uh, Captain Marvel. He would um, he, he didn't really have necessarily a regular gig, but he started being a fill-in guy. You you maybe know him best as an extended run on West Coast Avengers, but. Jim Shooter, who really liked Al, and Al was an editor as well. So he was an editor during this time. He edited such books as Marvel Fanfare. He would he did a, a bit about himself called Editory Al. And Editory, then hyphen Al. So Editory Al, he drew a character of himself. He talked about himself. He uh, he depicted himself in the comics, had commentary. So he was an editor as well as an artist. He um he 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 had taken up to inking at Jim Shooter's uh suggestion that he do more inking. Al had inked Jack Kirby in the 70s. He had inked Dave Cockrum. He had inked George Perez. He had inked John Byrne. He was an accomplished inker. You could make really good scratch being an inker because you could potentially, if you got the discipline, do three pages a day. And if you're doing three pages a day and as a penciler, it may take you all day to do one page, then you're definitely making more money being an inker um, because three pages will accumulate into greater earnings than that one page. And so at some point in the in the 80s, I mean, he's inking Walt Simons, who I know, Walt Simonson, who I know he is friends with. He is inking, uh, you know, d- different assignments over John Byrne. Uh, he takes to inking, uh, he, and, and he really tries to be as commercial as possible. He start he inked a couple of my jobs, my early work. He inked some Jim Lee jobs uh, on Punisher. He was definitely somebody who was seen as a go-to guy in in, in regards to somebody who could, um, you know, get the inking done done. He get the inking work done. He inked Art Adams. He inked Art Adams, no less, on on some X Men X Factor jobs. And so, but apparently he had had a falling out with editor in chief Bob Harris. And um, when Bob left the book, uh, Universe X Spidey was a comic book that was coming out. And, and in the comic, to let everyone know the disdain that he had for Bob Harris, who is the guy who opened the door for me. If you've listened to this podcast, Bob Harris, I have nothing but great respect, love, and admiration adoration for. He allowed me to create Cable and Deadpool. He came to me and said, I need these new characters. Fill them up. Um, get, get, gave me the opportunity to open this door. Shatterstar, Feral, uh, Strife, the, the MLF, you know, all of it. The six-pack, Grizzly, Kane, all of that is because Bob said, go ahead, Rob, do whatever you want. Make these characters. The uh, the the for many people, I, like myself, I had great great relationship with Bob. Maybe we didn't always like each other, or 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 were fond of each other, but we had professional respect, and that's what we were there to do. You're not supposed to wake up and love your teammates every day, but you know if you have respect for your coach, you're going to deliver for your coach. Okay, and we've all seen athletes fall out with their coaches, and a coach has to hold everything together. Well, apparently. Al Milgram was not fond of the coaching uh, editorial um, oversight that Bob Harris had applied to him because when he leaves, he puts all over books in a background scene 
in Universe X Spidey. Harris, ha ha ha, he's gone. Good riddance to bad rubbish. He was a nasty SOB. Um, the uh, it appears in the published in the in the uh, in the published product, and uh, as a result of that making it through Marvel, even though it was no longer with Bob Harris, uh, they they terminated his his freelance contract and parted ways with him. I mean, these rivalries sometimes have scorched earth uh, scorched earth results. Uh, John Byrne again reared his head in a rivalry with Peter David. Um, these guys are two very prominent characters. Uh, I mean, very prominent characters, also prominent characters. Uh, creators, characters. Prominent creators, prominent characters. And uh, they were not afraid to speak their mind against each other over time. And uh, Peter David, some of you guys don't know, when I met Peter David, when I was working at Marvel, he was in Marvel's sales and marketing department. He worked alongside a woman named Carol Kalish, and they were their job was to create sales campaigns and um, marketing plans for books that were going to the direct market, which is the comic book store market. And uh, I guess Byrne uh, had 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 uh, kind of grown to resent Peter during that time because Peter was working in that department when he was working on Alpha Flight, and uh, and and John Byrne accused Peter David of showing retailers xeroxes of a spoiler before the comic book hit the hit the stance and uh peter david claims that it was unlettered and it was not it, you know it wasn't clear what he was showing retailers um but uh then the 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 reaction that john byrne had was the the, the culprit that convinced retailers of their authenticity man this sounds familiar to me um Anyway, they've traded verbal slings and arrows their entire career, and uh, in during during um, John John Byrne uh, John Byrne did Incredible Hulk, and uh, you know uh, he he and then Peter David took over afterwards, and and uh, the, the, the these two guys have always kind of had a beef for each other, and have written articles and and have written and have said some some really. Um, crazy stuff about each other along the way. John um, would go and do interviews. Let me let me just tell you, I've, 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 I've covered this in several um, different podcasts. John Byrne would go and do interviews with prominent comic book magazines like the Comics Journal back in the day, and he would take shots at Marv Wolfman. He would take shots at George Perez. He would take shots at Jim Starlin, literally. And this is when he is the number one draw in 1980. His books, he is doing Captain America and the X-Men. And if you go and... Um, and read this comics journal issue. I mean, he is making fun of how George Perez draws and lays out pages, makes fun of um, how Marv Wolfman wrote a story, makes fun of uh, Jim Starlin's approach to comic books at the time and why his stuff wasn't doing as well. He, there is, there is, he takes, he takes shots at inkers. He takes shots at Bob Layton, who would go on, I mean, to, to, to great prominence, inking Iron Man, writing Iron Man, and then being a co-president of Valiant Entertainment. But John said some really mean things about Bob Layton in this same interview. So, um, you know, it, it really gets back to, um, uh, the, 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 uh, this, John kind of has a beef with everybody. So when he beefed on me, for instance, I, I just would, I didn't sweat it. Peter David's response, by the way, to John Byrne's accusation that he spoiled the end of his big twist ending in Alpha Flight. See, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Okay. But, uh, you're, you have to, that, that, that twist ending is really good. Um, and, and, and you should deserve, you deserve to experience it on your own. Alpha Flight, like 9, 10, 11, 12 are fantastic comics. 13, too. Um, you should check them out. Uh, Don, P. 
Peter David says, no, 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 no. A popular lie of John Burns, but no, number one, it wasn't at a convention. It was at a get-together for retailers that I showed them these pages. It wasn't the, I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm, I'm blanking that out. It was an unlettered sequence in which uh, the, the character's wife was seeing uh, 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 the, the, the character in, in regards to this spoiler um, in, in a certain condition. And he said, uh, you know, uh, he said he checked with everybody and said, are you sure you want me to include this? In? He, 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 Peter David says he checked with his, you know, uh, superior said, you want me to inclu- include this in it? And his editor said, yes, there's no harm in this. Um, and and uh, John showed up at the get together following this on site after he showed this and screamed at the top of his lungs. How could you be showing this to retailers? This gives away the spoiler. He stormed out of the room, screaming, um, kicking over an ashtray on a table on his way out. The retailers were stunned, and uh, and then uh, came to the conclusion that um, that 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 John that that John says uh, Peter uh, revealed this, and uh, and and John is claiming that Peter says they only knew about it because of John's reaction to what he was showing. Um, there's an article that says, why does John Byrne hate everyone? This was, um, this is very, very funny. Um, and, uh, John Byrne at one point was so pissed off at Jim Shooter, uh, that, that John Byrne made a giant pinata where he put a photograph of Jim Shooter's face on it and burned it with fire, pretending that it was Jim Shooter. This story has been verified by several people in attendance. One of them being, wait for it, wait for it, Peter David himself. Um, John Byrne. Uh, obviously, we know about the Alpha Flight reveal. We've already talked about this. Now, here's the deal. Dave Cockrum. This, to me, is the funniest rivalry. Dave Cockrum was the artist that brought back the new X-Men. He draws Giant Size X-Men number one, which is beautiful. I believe he pencils and inks the entire job. X-Men 100. Um, you should check that out. That is also a beautiful... It's when the old X-Men and the new X-Men battle. And it is a beautifully gorgeous book. There was an artist edition. There's Look, here's the deal. There's an art, art edition, giant-sized, oversized art edition that scans directly from Dave's original art collected from all these different collectors who have pages. They all contributed. I contributed to the John Byrne version. They both have art editions of their work because they're so celebrated. Dave Cockrum and John Byrne. Cockrum, C-O-C-K-R-U-M. He, Dave had to leave X-Men with X-Men 107 because he couldn't hit the deadlines. But from giant size X-Men number one, and then the books restarts, you know, and, 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 and from 96 on or 94 on, Dave Cockrum does the book until 107. Uh, There may be a a fill-in or two, but he is the dedicated artist and they wanted the book to go monthly. Dave couldn't do it. He had to step down. Dave was the cover artist editor. He was the cover artist editor. During this time, Dave Cockrum is giving you covers on Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. He is giving you Marvel team-up covers. He is giving you Avengers covers. He is giving you Marvel 2-in-1 covers, Captain America cover, uh, Captain America covers. He is giving you Iron Man covers. Dave Cockrum is one of the greatest cover artists of all time. That's why he got the gig. Gil Kane, who is definitely on the Mount Rushmore of comic book artists in my house, uh, was the cover artist prior to him. Dave Cockrum picked up that mantle and continued it. And these works and these this art and and these depictions of these the, these characters on these covers are perfection. They are they are some amazing covers. He was he was also supplied with giving out cover sketches as the cover editor. And I got a couple of these when Ed Hannigan was the cover editor when I got hired. They give you a care. Sometimes it may be just a stick figure of where they want you to assemble 
the characters, the figures, the shot, okay? Um, I've seen some of Dave Cockrum's roughs. He did roughs for many George Perez covers that George Perez would then draw from Dave Cockrum's layout and marker rough comp. This is how it works in the biz. You're given a layout. I've given people layouts. It's, it's how you want to see the shot. Now you can draw it in your style, but I need these elements. This is in the foreground. This is in the background. This is in the midground. Okay. That's what you're giving, being given this um, for. Uh, Dave Cockrum is followed by John Byrne on the X-Men. And, and apparently, I did not know this, but they did not like each other. Now, there is a, a issue of Iron Fist that John Byrne drew that depicted Lo, uh, Wolverine without his mask on. And uh, uh, Dave, who had who had was the first artist to show you what Wolverine looked like without his mask on. He Dave Dave Cockrum is the originator, the uh, the the original artist behind Logan. He goes in and he redraws because I've held these pages. I've held three of these pages recently in my hands as I've debated buying them from three different different collectors. One of them I want the most because it has the most Dave Cockrum redraws. Dave was liberal with his whiteout, with his paste, with um, going over faces and drawing right over them, just as John Romita Sr. has been his entire career. But on these pages, and if you go to that issue, is it Iron Fist 16? It's, 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 it's him fighting the X-Men on the cover. Um, Dave Cockrum did a bunch of redraws on top of John Byrne's, uh, the inked artwork that Dan Green inked. Dave would white it out and redraw the Wolverine on model the way he believes he was depicted to look. Now, John was just starting the X-Men. So Dave is, in his mind, protecting the look that he's established and wants this to be seen as the established look. So he, and, and, and as the cover editor and art director of Marvel Comics, those are the two hats that he was wearing. You know, he had a lot of power. So uh, Dave Cockrum, um, I, I'm, I'm going to read this and then give you some insight, further insight. So your two biggest, maybe the most celebrated names ever on the X-Men outside of Jim Lee, John Byrne, Dave Cockrum, and then Jim Lee, I think are the three names that immediately X-Men with longtime readers and fans, they associate that with. Certainly, again, Giants has X-Men number one is never not going to be done brilliantly, beautifully by Dave Cockrum, okay? So Dave Cockrum uh, went on to say that I think John Byrne is an arrogant first-class jerk. Uh, he said, in 2004, while I was in the hospital fighting for my life, John Byrne made a crack about my work on his John Byrne website, and it really pissed me off and infuriated me so much that she banned John Byrne from contributing to the Dave Cockrum tribute book, okay? Now, here's the deal. I know that the bad blood runs deep with these guys, and it goes way back. Those John Byrne X-Men run that I talk about constantly. Here is the definition of a rivalry. John Byrne takes over the book because Dave Cockrum can't finish it. Okay. Uh, Dave Cockrum then stays on as the cover guy. And when he can't do the covers, he makes somebody other than John Byrne do them. John did very few covers on this book. Uh, George Perez did a famous uh, cover with Magneto. Um, uh, battling the X-Men. It, maybe it could have been John Byrne. Dave didn't have time to do it. He supplied the layout. He had George Perez do it. Now, the next issue is by John Byrne, but then we go on an extended run. The first Alpha Flight, Alpha Flight Battling X-Men is drawn by Dave Cockrum, inked by Terry Austin. The other one, introducing uh, Alpha Flight, is drawn by Bob Budiansky, not John Byrne, not Dave Cockrum. Um, Dave Cockrum was mastering the cock block. 
He was, and he told me this. Why am I telling you this? Because Dave Cockrum told me to my face. Dave Cockrum and I visited. We spoke. I got the license to one of his most beloved, cherished creations called the Futurians. I have gotten the license to that twice. I have failed to get it off the ground twice. It is extremely frustrating, but I have been trying to get other media partners to join me in this endeavor. But long story short, I have, uh, when I first got the Futurians license from Dave, I had visited Dave at conventions as a fan. I got, I have sketches in my sketchbooks. I paid him for commissions. He was always a sweet, generous, kind. Dave Cockrum's persona to the fans is anti-John Byrne. John Byrne is famous for sniping and being sort of ugly um, to, to, the, to, to fans throughout the history of his career. He put signs on his desk. These are well documented. He would put signs on his table saying, um, off duty while he sat there and read a comic book so that you would know not to approach him. Okay. Off duty. Instead of just completely leaving, he would sit there on his stool, on his chair, and he had an elevated chair and table that he put up high. He brought his own um, tables and chairs at a time where that was just unheard of. But then he had his different signage that he would com communicate you with, with this with this with you. I will actually end this with a funny Rob Liefeld, John Byrne story that acted that that, that, that came about. But um, Dave Cockrum, on the other hand, just a sweetheart. Every time I encountered him, whether it was San Diego Comic Con 1982, LA Comic Con 1984, 1985, again when I saw him in 87, um, Dave Cockrum always a sweetheart. Dave Cockrum came and followed you know John Byrne when John Byrne leaves the X Men, and then he goes on a two and a half year run on the X Men. So the Uncanny X Men go Cockrum, Byrne, Cockrum. They're the they're, if you get the first three X-Men omnibuses, you're basically getting just the work of mostly 90% of the work of Dave Cockrum and John Byrne. So Dave tells me, well, you know, Rob, I didn't like that guy. I didn't like the things he said about me. He had a little bit of a draw. And I didn't like the way he treated me and the way he talked about me in the press. I made sure he did as few covers as possible. And I definitely made sure he did as few X-Men covers as possible. Now, Again, who brought the X-Men back to life? Dave Cockrum did. Giant Size X-Men number one. That X-Men 100 is still a jaw-dropping, gorgeous comic book. Dave had has his claim. He created the Star Jammers, the Imperial Guard. Yes, both those teams. The Imperial Guard, the Star Jammers, um, the look of Phoenix, Storm, Nightcrawler. He, he, he is the um, visual creator of these characters, along with Len Wein, okay? So, so Dave has definitely... Um, skin in the game when it comes to the X-Men. Obviously, uh, Len Wein, Herb Trimpey created Wolverine, who was included in Giant Size X-Men number one. And, and Dave didn't do Banshee and Sunfire, but Colossus, Storm, Nightcrawler. I mean, the buck stops right with Dave Cockrum. So does he have sort of a uh, a, a, a grandfathered clause into the leg legacy of those characters? He did. And at that time, I think Marvel was all too happy to keep him on the covers. And, and, and again, I mean, go through the covers. There's way more Dave Cockrum covers on the John Byrne run than there are John Byrne covers. John, towards the end, when Dave is no longer the cover editor, regains uh, control of the situation. But that's a rivalry, kids. That's a rivalry. That is um, a guy who's like, I don't like the way you treat me. I don't like the way you talk about me. And I don't think their rivalry ever recovered. And he told me to my face in 1994 how much he just did not care for John Byrne. I then make the mistake of allowing... Keith Giffen, God bless him, I love Keith. He had done so much work for me at Extreme Studios. I allow Keith Giffen uh, to do the Futurians book. But because I've bought the license, um, I don't think that this is going to infuriate Dave. Dave was very angry with me when he found out that I had hired 
Keith Giffen to do the Futurians. He called me up and he was very angry with me and expressed how disappointed he was that I had gone in with Keith Giffen because he had a rivalry with Keith over their shared um, legacy on the Legion of Superheroes. Um, I, he told me that Keith had changed a lot of his great costumes. And look, go and Google Dave Cockrum and, and look at Dave Cockrum's career. And he is one of the most celebrated costume designers in the history of comics. From the look of Ms. Marvel to the look of Phoenix, Storm. Again, look at all these powerful visuals. The guy just knew how to make characters look cool and great. And on the Legion, he had designed costumes that really had, had, had lasted over a decade. He did some really signature looks on so many of the Legion of Superheroes characters. When Keith Giffen came along, he did, in fact, change many of those looks and altered them, them somewhat. I, as a fan, didn't mind it at the time. I thought it was kind of a modernization. It did not make me think less of the Dave Cockrum designs, but from wherever Dave was in his studio, he took that personally. It was a slight he didn't like that Dave had that Keith Giffen had done that to his character designs that he thought were very special and they were. And so, in fact, he was fearful that Keith Giffen was going to come on and change the Futurians look. And he said, Rob, I'd like to have the license back. I don't like it. Nothing saw print. This was just the news that I was doing this and Keith had started work on it. Dave was angry with me. I, I wanted Dave and I to be cool. I did not take the money back. I let him keep the money. And I honored the agreement and gave the Futurians back to him because, I, again, I stepped in something I didn't know existed. It didn't come with preconceived, um, established kind of parameters to not let Keith Giffen near it. But because of that, I had to take it away. Now, uh, with John Byrne, John Byrne started coming out to shows finally after maybe a 10-year period regularly hitting the convention circuit. And he was signing uh, for, for people, I think, 10 books per person. I had told the editor... Of, uh, I had told a, a, an executive at IDW how excited I was that John was going to be signing at their, at their booth. And he said, hey, come in his enthusiasm. He says, Rob, come a little earlier and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll introduce you to John and maybe we can all go out to dinner. And I said, hey, executive, you don't, under, don't understand. John Byrne hates me. He hates me with a passion. Well, have you guys ever had a... I said, no, we have never had... Uh, there, we have never even had an alteration. I have just always worshipped him. And he has always said how you know, crappy he thinks I am. I said, I'd love to, but you're going to get a hard no. So about 25 minutes before the signing, I'm walking towards the IDW booth that this executive meets me and says, Rob, Rob, oh, wow, wow, you were so right. I was so wrong. I was way off. I was way off. He goes, uh, John actually said that if you, uh, if you approach, you guys, let me actually put a year on this. This is 2019. So this is just not even two years ago. He says, if you approach the IDW booth, um, John Wool says it will get ugly very fast if you approach him. And I sat there for a minute and young Rob would have walked right past him and bullied my way to the front of the line and said, hey, John, how's it going? And I would have poked that bear. Old Rob doesn't need to embarrass IDW himself or John Byrne because that's just folly and foolish. And so I decided, I said, huh, but the idea that things are going to get ugly, you caution Rob, he shouldn't come anywhere near me. I don't know what that is all about. That is insane to me. But I um, got my book signed via a different means because I just want my book signed by my favorite uh, uh, comic book creator and uh, comic book artist and the comic book run that, that, that I cherished. So I gave my books over. They came back fully signed. Um, the executive 
was relieved that I was not going to press the matter because certainly John is sitting at a table that is facing a public aisle. And, you know, the, the New York Comic Con is not about to tell Rob Liefeld he can't walk down an aisle and face a certain talent that is at a table facing the general public. But again, th these rivalries are nuts. And we only touched on a couple of them today. Okay, I know it was very John Byrne-centric, but he is at the top of the list. We're going to do another episode detailing comic book rivalries because you guys can see this is crazy pants. These people, you, you thought athletes had it in for each other? Are, are, are we paying attention to how bad it gets with the comic book talent? Well, again, what started out as me just being so tickled by, by the rivalry between Studio Ghibli, which is kind of like... the. They retired. They're like, we're out of the business. And now saying Demon Slayer's our rival. And there's even a quote that says like, we're going to have to, you know, unretire and get back in, into the business. But from 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 Ghibli and Demon Slayer to, to Cameron and Marvel and Lucas and Spielberg to John Byrne and Peter David and Rob Liefeld and Dave Cockrum, rivalries are, are really fun. At the end of the day, as long as nobody got, got hurt, it, they're fun, okay? And, and so you guys... Um, just we're going to get more into the rivalries this is going to be a very very rich territory for us to cover um it is at this point in observations that i am able to share with you guys some of the great reviews i'm reading your reviews i'm 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 uh, i'm i'm sharing some of the really sweet things that you guys are are, are saying and um um, uh, here is here is one from Pugs P U G S P U G Z X C Pugs X C. Rob has been killing it since he started his podcast, and this is another home run with his review of the Snyder Cut of the Justice League movie. His energy and excitement comes out from the speaker. I was already excited, but just hearing Rob talk about the Snyder Cut gets me more hyped. Thank you for the time and hard work you put on your podcast. Can't wait for the next. Thank you, Pugs X C. Um. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to uh, share this review uh, from from ACCMJM. 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 Great storyteller in any medium. Five stars. Rob brings the same high energy to this podcast that he brings to his artwork. His first-hand accounts of the history of comic book medium are spellbinding. I have enjoyed Rob's work since I first saw it in Atlantis Attacks Annuals as a kid, and I hope he keeps making these podcasts for a long time to come. You bet, ACCMJM, thank you for that, and you can count on it. I'm going to keep producing the show and getting this out there, and you guys, I need you to continue to spread the word, recommend, subscribe, download, um, share your, your reviews. I will be happy to read them here on air as we have continued to do, as we have renewed with kind of this new season, season two, T-O-O -O, as I call it. So here's the deal. Guys, catch me on social media. I am at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. It's a blue check. That's me on Twitter. Longer name, at Robert Liefeld. Another blue check. That's really me. At Robert Liefeld on Twitter. At Rob Liefeld on Instagram. I'm all over Facebook. I'm all over social media. Please reach out. Please say hi. I love talking to you guys, sharing thoughts, ideas, chit-chatting with you guys. Um, so we will be back next time with an all-new Rob Observations. Um, you guys, you know the drill. You are going to stay safe. You're going to take care of yourself. And we are going to talk again real soon. 